Hey gang, Jinx here. Welcome back to another episode. Just wanted to take a second to pester the hell out of you about our Patreon again. We have about another seven or eight episodes planned for this round of Scream Addicts, and we're hoping to be able to do more, but we need your help. If you're able to, please consider hitting our Patreon and donating at the $1 or $5 range. It'd mean the world to us and keep us afloat for many more episodes to come. You can find our Patreon on the front page of the Mailroom Studios website. That's mailroomstudios.com. Also, a quick question. How many of you listeners out there might be interested in purchasing Screamatics t-shirts or even enamel pins? Let us know on Twitter or Facebook and we'll look into it if there's enough interest. And with all that out of the way, on with the show. A serial killer murdered his partner, Foster, three years ago. He was there when it happened. Survivor's guilt. Yeah, just plain guilt. Killer's back. I thought you said this guy wouldn't be back. Sir, all the evidence and research shows that a serial killer of this type doesn't come back. Who is this? Detective Dick Durkin. Are you sure it's him? He ripped her heart out. Her heart? What for? Maybe he eats him for breakfast. I hear he used to be a really good cop. Like my son? What else? He doesn't shop? Yeah. But he went a bit loopy. Well, that could be why you're psychic. I just feel things, that's all. I hate to be the one to break the news, but that's what psychic is. Second, starring Rutger Hauer, after 40 days and nights of torrential rain, the city is largely submerged below water. A result of the devastating effects of continued global warming, the warnings ignored by the Trump administration for decades have now resulted in an undreamed of levels of pollution, where day has become almost endless night. This is the story of a boy whose apartment was so filthy, so disgusting that from his poor hygiene was birthed. A hideous monster. Hope you enjoy. (laughs) 
and that How might that? be the best intro we have ever had for the show. Hello, and welcome back to Scream Addicts. I'm Jinx, your host, and that was Todd Farmer talking about Tony Malum's 1992 sci-fi horror film, Split Second. Mr. Farmer is a screenwriter known for writing Jason X, My Bloody Valentine 3D, and Drive Angry. Mr. Farmer, thank you so much for being on the show. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, and I'm glad that I forgot that you told me that I should remember to do that, and, and I just wanged it. No, is hey, wonged a word? I feel like wonged shouldn't be a word. I think it's it is wonged. now. Yeah, okay, fine. Why not wonged? <laughs> so how's Florida? Uh, Florida is fantastic. It's uh, humid as all hell, okay. uh, really hot. I'm sitting in a, uh, oh gosh, kind of this little satellite library place. I'm uh, I'm, I'm missing the, uh, the nice air-conditioned uh, podcast booth that I used to have up north in southern Ohio. But you know what? I am jazzed to talk about this movie with you, so uh, I'm just... Uh, I'm just going to bear it. I'm, 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 okay, gonna, I'm just going to push through. So, so we That's... always, I, I got to ask, we always begin each episode with me asking my guest why they chose the horror film they did to talk about. And with that being said, I'll ask, why the hell haven't we gotten a sequel to My Bloody Valentine 3D yet? I, I, I can't help but ask you that before we dive into our conversation proper. Please, it's, it's one of the strongest slasher movies to have come along in recent years. It's set up perfectly for a follow-up. It made loads of money. Yeah, I, I read Box Office Mojo. I'm hip. Anyway, I'm sorry. I just had to ask that and get it out of the way right at the start, if that's okay. Do you want the truth or do you want the lies that we have been told? Yes. <laughs> um. There's so many lies that we've been, I don't know, but they're lies. I know we've been told a lot of stories as to why it didn't happen. Um, when, before the movie came out, Patrick and I, I mean, the thing is, we, we always thought it was going to be a good movie. We always thought it would be a success. Why would you go down this road of making movies if you didn't think your movie was going to be good and well accepted? And so we had planned on two more movies to follow it. And so we went into Lionsgate and we pitched, um, we pitched the sequel. And they loved it. And then the movie came out. You know, they were, they'd had a, a rough couple of years. And so they were nervous. And, and you know, they, they came back and said, look, we're going to make a ton of money this weekend. And so they were very excited. And we thought, oh, great, this is going to happen. And then we simply just never heard anything. And we called and we left messages and we would email and we just never heard anything. Um, we heard, eventually we heard that there were rights issues, that the studio, um, and I don't remember I don't remember everyone involved. The original studio was not um, was not Lionsgate, and Lionsgate put out Bloody Valentine. So I can't remember what was it. Paramount it may have been Paramount. Anyway, I had heard there were rumors that um, they they had only gotten the rights to do one movie, that they didn't have the rights to do a second movie. That was one rumor. I also heard that the guy who was running the studio at the time didn't like didn't like the movie. Uh, he would, uh, that was one, one thing. Another was, um, I don't know. I could go on and on, but, uh, why they didn't do it. I don't know. Every year we actually have a conversation with them about, Hey, we should, we should do this. Cause I think it's, we're barking up 10 years now. No, yeah, what is it? Yeah. 2008. Yeah. 2008, 2018. I guess we're close to 10 years. I think it came out in 2008, right? I don't was, yeah, it was somewhere eight, nine, ten, somewhere around in there. I remember it being one of the first, uh, real D 3d movies I caught in a theater, which I think was around that. Time. Yeah. And I mean, I, you know, we, the sequel that we had planned, Jamie, we'd already talked to everybody. Jamie would come back. Jensen would come back. Eddie would come back. Everybody who lived would come back. Um, we had, we wanted to bring in, um, Oh, the, the Kurgan, um, Clancy Krusty Crab. Uh, crap. What's his name? 
Is it Clancy oh. Brown? Clancy Brown. We want to bring in Clancy Brown. I mean, a whole bunch of people we wanted to bring into the franchise, and uh, we were really excited about it. And then we just never heard anything. So that was a shame. Uh, I, I, yeah, I'm sorry again for uh, beginning with that. I just had to ask because I am a huge fan of that movie, and uh, yeah, that's always, that's always one of the big question marks for me as a fan is why you know very good movies that are successful for whatever reason never have the obvious follow ups that one would expect. So. Uh, thank you. For well, thanks for thank yeah, thanks for opening with that. I'm going to go drink some alcohol and I'm try to sorry. find some heroin now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we'll start the talk out properly then. Out of any horror movie you might have chosen to talk about, any at all, why go with Split Second? Um, because I saw the I saw the Venom um, trailer, <laughs> and I was like, huh, I'm going to go back and check out Split Second, and uh, that, that's really how it started. But uh, before we get into that, Burt Reynolds, dude. Yeah, yeah. I should probably tell listeners we're we're banking these episodes in advance of when they're eventually going to drop. I'm not certain when this episode is going to come out, but as we record this, it was just announced that Burt Reynolds passed away at the age of 82. And it's, you know, there there are certain people. I mean, when you hear somebody passes away, you know, you yeah. Yeah, especially at that age, there's this feeling of. Ah, that's that's very sad. But what a life they lived, and mm-hmm. you know, and it's sad. But at the same time, my goodness, the, the 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 amount of time and what they were able to accomplish, you know. But equally, there are people, there are icons that you sort of have the feeling that, you know, if they were gonna die, they should have done it in their twenties. Otherwise, yeah. they don't really have a right to die. And Burt Reynolds, to me, is one of those icons. He is somebody that I can't really imagine being dead, even now that we've gotten the news. And I don't know, how do you feel about it? What were some of your favorite films of his? Or what what immediately came to mind? What character when you heard that? Well, I mean, you know, I think probably the first movie I saw was Squeal Like a Pig, which is not the official title. Um, (laughs) But my favorite movie, God, it'd be a toss-up between The Longest Yard and Hooper. Nice. Uh, which both movies I pulled out and I'm going to watch tonight. But, um, yeah, I mean, I grew up with, you know, I'm barking up 50. So I grew up with, you know, parents who loved Burt Reynolds. He was the biggest movie star in the world back then. I mean, I think at one point he was making $5 million a picture, which didn't sound like a lot, but nobody was making $5 million a picture. And so, you know, he was... You know, he was the top of the game. And so uh, it's funny. My girlfriend was telling me a story. She worked with uh, with Reynolds uh, on a Hallmark movie. I think it was a Hallmark movie. Uh, she said it was Ed Eisner and Bruce Dern. And anyway, she was telling this story about at the end of the shoot, they would all go hang out in his trailer. And that he wore, <laughs> they'd go over there. He was just coming out of makeup, so he would always be in a robe. But it wasn't a Harvey Weinstein robe. It was just him. Was <laughs> He was in a robe. And they'd watch movies and and they always busted his balls about it. he would always be wearing this freaking robe. And, you know, he was hairy like a like a bear. And so it, so anyway, they all, they all made a big deal out of it. And so at the end of the shoot, and she kept saying over and over, he was he was an absolute gentleman. He never did anything like, you know, like I kept saying, did he grab your ass? Because if he didn't, just lie to me and tell me he did. <laughs> and she, you know, she was like, no, he was a perfect gentleman. And she said, but at the end of the shoot, because they kept busting his balls about the robe, he bought the entire crew robes. Oh, wow. <laughs> Freaking fun. And by the way, this wasn't a big movie. It's not like, you know, he wasn't at that point making $5 million a picture or whatever the going rate was. So, I don't know. He was a good guy. And so. He's a guy, too, that seems to have not been very affected by... 
you know, I, I, I mentioned the word icon a minute ago, but, you know, there, there are certain actors, it seems, and directors, you know, uh, that once they reach a certain age, it seems like their sort of output, you know, can understandably decline a bit. And, yeah. you know, as a result, maybe they're not appearing in movies at the level that they had been once upon a time. You know, maybe they can't command the audiences or paychecks that they once did. And yet, and, you know, sometimes maybe that, that does tarnish one's uh, legacy a bit. Bit. But with him, it never really seemed to. I mean, he could, you know, he could pop up in some smaller movies. Uh, yeah. And yet, you know, whenever you hear his name, you don't think about those movies. You immediately think about his heyday. And uh, but it, it, it's also kind of sad to me, too, that uh, he never really got the career revitalization that some actors of his stature who have fallen on harder times seem to get sometimes you know it, it feels like boogie nights should have really launched him into another level again that should have been like the the second chapter of his career yeah. or i don't know third it didn't, fifth, yeah it knows, didn't but... really happen did it there was also the uh the demi moore movie which he had a small part in but i, I can't remember if that was first or not but i mean he it's like he, he was set for a comeback and it just didn't happen yeah which is so unfair. Don't know it's funny though because i was um I was in uh, Thomas Jane's entourage for a time. I don't know if you know Tom. Tom was in uh, uh, Thomas Jane. Thomas Jane was in Boogie Nights. He was yeah, the uh, he was the he's, John Holmes essentially, yes, right? Or, no, uh, not John Holmes. No, no, uh, that no, would no, be Marky Wahlberg. But <laughs> but he, he uh, was, he was the, involved in the uh, the essentially the Wonderland shooting. Moment. Yeah, he was the he was the he was the drug guy who at the end of the movie he's there when they try to heist uh, when they try to heist Doc Ock and. Um, but I remember there was a story that uh, Burt Reynolds and Mark Wahlberg got into a fight on set. What? And Burt Reynolds punched Mark Wahlberg. Now, that, that was everywhere in Hollywood. I don't know if it ever broke out into, into mainstream. But the funny thing is, it wasn't Mark Wahlberg. It was Tom. <laughs> oh, God, you're kidding. Tom and, uh, and, Tom and uh, Burt Reynolds got into a fight, and uh, Burt Reynolds punched Tom. How, how does one get into a fight? And here's the thing. I'm, I'm a fan of Thomas Jane. He's, he's the star of one of my favorite movies of all time. I uh, Listeners out there, if you've never seen a movie called Stander, it's... Uh, Stander's fantastic. Oh, my God. It's yeah, one of the best damn movies I've ever seen. And for whatever reason, nobody talks about it. No, they don't. But And Tom, by the way, is not playing Tom. He's like, he's doing an accent. He's like way out there. No, it's a good movie. I love that film. But how, how, how does one get into a fight with Burt Reynolds? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I can't. If I knew, I couldn't go into details anyway. Fair enough. Fair enough. I still want to believe that he punched uh, Marky Mark instead, though. Feel free. I have no problem with that's, that. That's a legend we should print. That should be the headlines tomorrow when we talk about the man's legacy. You know, uh, Hooper, Deliverance, Smoking the Bandit, Punch Marky Mark. I agree. <laughs> So, okay. Anyway, sorry. We, we, you know what? That's this uh, podcast in a nutshell, really. We, we tend to digress quite a bit. It's just like a basic chat, you know, and uh, we don't always have to talk about the movie that we've, we've chosen to talk about. And yet I got to ask, when did you first see Split Second and what were your initial thoughts on it? Well, I didn't, I don't think I saw it in a theater. I mean, back then, what year was that? Uh, 92, I think. 92. How the freak old was I in '92? I was in, I was graduated in high, so I was I was in college. I probably saw it on on my VCR. I don't remember seeing seeing it in the theater. Maybe I did. I was a big Rutger fan, um, 
I remember the first time I saw Rutger was probably Nighthawks oh, wow. with uh, Stallone and uh, Apollo Creed. Um, <laughs> it's a great movie. Of course, Blade Runner was beautiful. Lady Hawk, where I fell in love with Michelle Pfeiffer and still to this day am. Uh, Maddie Broderick became my best friend during that. So uh, there was The Hitcher, which oh, was just freaking fantastic. Uh, Wanted Dead or Alive with Gene Simmons. Oh, my goodness. That was wonderful. And uh, and Blind Fury. I think it was at, around the time of Blind Fury when he started going back into, like he was this, I guess with Blade Runner and Nighthawks and Lady Hawk, he was sort of A-game. And then he sort of went into B-movies at some point. Maybe it was Wanted Dead or Alive. Maybe it was Blind Fury. I don't know. It, it uh, But certainly Split Second fell into that category. Which is unfair because it's, Blind Fury is fucking fantastic. It is. It is amazing. It's wonderful. And he, you know, he's one of those guys where he's playing blind without the glasses, and I, you know, within you know ten minutes, I totally buy that he he he's not seeing anything. It's beautiful. But uh, I really think he was a he was he was a better actor than he ever get, was given credit. Um, and go back to uh, the Thomas Jane. He uh, Thomas Jane actually married his daughter. So there was uh, really, yeah. I, how how crazy is that? Before uh, uh, before um, Patricia Arquette. So um, welcome to a small world. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that movie. I think I saw it on VHS. But when I saw it, I absolutely loved it. I mean, everything about it spoke to me. It was just, I don't know what it was at the time. And by the way, this is this is me going on memory of what it was because I have recently watched it again, and we're going to talk about that. But when I first saw it, I thought it was freaking amazing. I, uh, <laughs> I'd recalled watching it as a kid, too. You know, I, I got to admit, I had not seen it. Uh, for decades, and when you uh, you mentioned that you wanted to uh, discuss it, I, I you know it's a bit of a treat. I was like, great, you know, I get to talk about a movie that I'm not really that familiar with, so I can, you know, I have an excuse to go back and revisit it. And you know, I <laughs> when you first mentioned, it, I recalled seeing it, you know, when I was young, and that it had definitely made an impression. But you know, it, it really was a lot of fun to revisit that film because, you know, for one, I hadn't remembered this this uh, what did we say? 1992 film was set in the future of 2008. And how yeah. crazy is it that the far future of the '90s is now uh, now a decade behind us now? And yeah. uh, <laughs> and the movie itself, it is a blast. I mean, it's it's got it that is. great anti-hero lead. You know, it's got those practical effects, the one-liners. You know, the, that a certain type of action. It, it really does feel like you know. The, I, I was reminded of the phrase, "They don't make them like they used to." When yeah. I rewatched that film, and uh, yeah, it was just so much fun to uh, to check out again. And. Uh, you know, it's funny, not a lot had stuck with me. I didn't remember much past, uh, you know, Rucker being, you know, playing sort of the ultimate badass type and, you know, the cool creature in some of the action scenes. But, uh, you know, it was really cool. Yeah, I, I dug it quite a bit. Yeah, it was cool. And it also, for the time, I mean, all of those actors went on to much bigger and, I mean, I say bigger and better, but, I mean, they did. I mean, Kim went on to a TV show that lasted for freaking ever. Um was it uh, the the guy who played the the rat catcher? Oh, uh, Michael, was, uh, Michael uh, Pollard. Pollard. Yes, Pollard. Yeah. He was in. Uh, I mean, he's the guy that Bill Murray killed and Scrooge. <laughs> he's, he's been in everything, and he was there. And then uh, Pete uh, Postlewaite. I never say his name right, but uh, you know he's uh, nominated for Academy Award after that. 
uh, not for that movie, but for a you know for uh, what was it in the name of the Madre? Um, and oh, then uh, yeah, he was he played the cop who had animosity with Rutger, and uh, but yeah, he was um, he was in in the name of the Father. He was um, oh my god, yeah, 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 that's correct. Uh, he was and- he was the father. He was and, in uh, uh, one of the Jurassic Park films too. Not oh the yeah, first one, but I think the sequel. Uh, third, was the sequel? I think the sequel or third. Was yeah, I can't remember. But yeah, he was there. He was the hunter. But he's been in, you know, he's been in a ton of ton of stuff. He's he's fantastic. And then Alan Armstrong, who I know because I first saw him in Les Mis, which that's a theater show where they sing. And you know, I grew up when I knew I was going to come out to Hollywood, but I started in theatrical and musical theater. I know, I know. I'm sorry. Should I be saying this out loud? Because I'm you know, like a horror geek, and yet I was doing musical theater. Hey, but I, he was I, I like never Matt. seen Lemus until like 2012 when that movie came out with Hugh Jackman, and I thought, you know, so many people have been a fan of this before this film. I got to see what it's about. And uh, yeah, so I sort of dove down that rabbit hole and watched every film adaptation, and watched the play, and read the book. And uh, so I'm right there with you. I'm a huge fan. Well, Alan was the uh, he was the, the the guy at the police station who was always yelling at Rutger, and he played uh, Thénardier, who was the the master of the house in Les Mis. So he had this whole he was sort of the comedic relief in this whole musical theater, and he was fantastic. And but he's one of those guys that's been in all of these movies, and um, just a character actor who I adore character actors. I mean, I fell in love with Bill Paxton when he was a character actor and Bill Fickner. I guess I like Bill's, but um, yeah, I mean, it's a great, it's a fantastic cast. And uh, it's, uh, it's funny because we have both now revisited it. And uh, to me, it is a much different movie than I remembered when I was a kid. I don't know if you feel the same way. Absolutely. But uh, by the way, I'm going to try something. I'm going to press play. Can you hear that? I hear some sort of tinkling wind chime sound. Oh, okay. That's that's my yard. Oh, that's sorry. not the movie. <laughs> I don't know that I. Can... Yeah, that's that's my yard. I don't know if I can get up there and get those down. No. So hey, that would just be the ambience in the background. I think that's. Fair. But okay, good. You can't hear the movie because I wanted to start the movie so I could just like see things as we're going along. But uh, sure, sure, sure. By the way, the, the opening of the movie is fantastic. Because it talks about global warming, and we are now actually dealing like you're talking about Florida's hot. I'm sitting here naked in in California because I'm so hot. <laughs> global warming is a real issue now, and this is a movie back in 1992 when no one even gave a crap about global warming. So that's a big deal to me. I think. Well, it's fake, right? There's no such thing. So apparently, it's, no. It's all fictional. So sci-fi, indeed. I don't know. No, I uh, I just like I said, I moved down here from Southern Ohio, and uh, you know I'm I'm old enough to remember when Southern Ohio had seasons, which is uh, no longer the case. It's either summer or winter there now, and it veers wildly back and forth between the two. So I I I miss fall. I miss October. I miss fall too. I, what yeah, I, I grew up in the South, so I totally do. <laughs> yeah, I you know. It is great that it dives right into that, though, and it's crazy to think that, you know, it's presenting us with a dystopian future that at the time wasn't that far away that's given to us, you know, because of global warming. But I'm curious. I wanted to see what your opinion was on this notion that 
Right off the bat, the movie tells us in that scroll that London has now endured torrential rain for 40 days and 40 nights. And that's the biblicalness of it. Yeah, it's a curiously specific thing for us to be told at the movie's outset. You know, not days, not weeks, but 40 days, 40 nights. So at the very beginning, we're meant to think of this otherwise futuristic sci-fi horror tale in sort of a Old Testament sort of way. I'm I'm okay with that because of where the movie goes because the movie goes into it doesn't go religious it goes into you know uh, I mean because we haven't talked about uh, Dick Durkin who comes in and he's he's got all of the this information about you know the zodiac and all these so it's it's religious mythological I mean it's it's got so I I didn't have a problem with that because I feel like it all kind of fits in because I think mythology and religion and, and all those things tend to interweave sometimes. And um, so, yeah, I, I, I kind of dug that. And, and cool I still, still kind of dig it. You know, that that it, you know, extends to the film's big creature and villain, I think is very cool. And, you know, I, I don't know if we're meant to realize that at the outset, of course. But, you know, I one wonders, I mean, is the villain in the movie just a serial killer is it an alien is it a demon is it loose for himself you know i i love that the movie ultimately doesn't lean too hard on any of those notions but but i gotta ask why do you feel as though they introduced that idea into the story in the first place they they sort of touch on the biblical before kind of retreating a bit from it i don't know i don't know the reason but i know that if i were redoing it i would leave that like if i were doing a remake i would totally leave that in there just because it adds it adds a layer of I don't know a layer of tapestry that I kind of like um, you know when I was growing up the scariest movies I watched were Exorcist and Omen I think that's because I came from a very religious background so they were scarier to me yeah. than say monsters that were fictitious um, I mean I loved Halloween I loved Freddy but and, I, and they scared me but it wasn't like Religious stuff scared me because I didn't understand it because I felt like there was a basis in that. And so that's why I liked this because it says, so you're like, wait, is this, is this, you know, is this prophesying something? You know, what is really going on here? And what was interesting is, is the movie starts like there's no origin story. It just starts and the killer's already out there. And so, he, you know, he walks into this club and he's already hunting the thing. And it's weird because, you know, you're, you're told that it's 40 days and 40 nights. So, you know, and I, I know a lot of people don't think of religion as supernatural, but in a lot of ways that certainly adds to a mythology in that it rained for 40 days, 40 nights. And now here we are in 2008 and it's raining for 40 days, 40 nights. And then this guy walks into a club and he knows the bad guy is there. How does he know that? And so all of that is kind of interesting and intriguing to me. Yeah, and too, I mean, for the glimpses we get all the way up until the end, you know, the creature has such an amazing look, too. You know, yeah. we, I mean, <laughs> you know, you, you mentioned it a bit yourself, but I mean, it's great timing that you chose this film to talk about because that new Marvel Venom movie is coming up. And here we have the very first time Venom ever appeared on screen. You know, he's I mean, big and again, and, and I mean, Let's look into that. This is this is 1992. Is that what you said? Yes. So Venom as a Marvel character. Ooh, good question. When did McFarlane draw? When did when did McFarlane? Because I think that it was later than. It would be uh, Amazing Spider-Man number 300. 300, yeah, which I have right behind me. May 1988. 
So they were totally ripping off Venom. I mean, he's big, he's slimy, he's obsidian, he has long talons, he's got this big grinning mouthful of long, sharp teeth. Yeah. The only thing he's missing are the white eyes and the spider symbol on his chest. Yeah, because he's got he's got a freaking mask. Like there's a there's a there's a I don't know what it what would would you call that? It's like a there's a there's a shield across his eyes. Now it's was not, that uh, is that something he's wearing or is it part of his biology? Because I wasn't able to. No tell. idea. I ne- I even I even froze the the movie the other night looking at it, and it, I mean, it looks like it's a part of him, but it also looks synthetic, so it doesn't really make any sense. I don't quite understand it. It looks like a motorcycle helmet visor just sort of welded to his face. It does, which makes no sense if you're Satan. <laughs> well, you know, know, everybody else that. is wearing you know sunglasses why not why not our creature in this movie oh. <laughs> and you Morgan. know I, usually in horror films i'm curious to see what you think about this so i always feel like you know too much backstory can ruin a good villain but in this movie's case i mean you know we we ultimately find that the villain is a creature sure you know he's very alien you know all goo no clothes but he's also a creature who wields a big shotgun and he can write bloody notes on mirrors and he can, uh, <laughs> he can send yeah. shoot up hearts to the police in an ice packed medical case. And, uh, and he absorbs the DNA of his victims after he kills them. And you know, I, I just, I mean, could we have yeah, was- perhaps a bit more backstory here? Couldn't we have had a bit more time with just the creature going about his day? You know, I don't, yeah. I don't need to see him get up in the morning, grab a cup of coffee and get a shower, but I mean, just a bit more of an explanation might yeah. not have oh. hurt in this case. I agree. And, you know, do you remember um, Stephen King's um, description of it? And he described it as, do you remember the um, uh, the Bugs Bunny? I forget what it was, but it's like Bugs Bunny and Roadrunner and everybody. They would come out on stage and dance at the beginning of the cartoon when we watched when we were kids. And that's how Stephen King described the creature in it. It was like all of these characters all coming together and merging into one character. And that's what this felt like to me because – it was just like it wasn't. It wasn't consistent. It was like there were all of these different mythologies sort of rolled in together. Like you say, Forty Days and Forty Nights was rolled into the Zodiac and rolled into. Here's this thing with its great big claws, and he's wearing a motorcycle helmet, but but he's also can absorb everyone's DNA. I mean, it's just all of these different things happening at the same time, and I, I never quite understood it when I rewatched it. When I watched it the first time, I think I was just so naive. I never thought about any of this stuff. It never I was just watching it for the explosions and the and the the big guns and and in Rutger because I really liked Rutger. And you know, and and Kim, you know, she was in uh Porky's and you know, she took her clothes off in that locker room and I was like, "Look, it's that girl that I really like." <laughs> and so I'm really simple when it comes to this kind of thing, by the way. But no, um, it's fair. It's fair. But when I got older, I was like, Okay, why, why? And by the way, can we take a moment to talk about Rutgers' apartment? He's never going to get laid. I. It was the filthiest. He's eating chocolate off the refrigerator that has clearly never been cleaned. He, when he tells her to watch her coat, because <laughs> there's a lot of greasy stuff hanging around the apartment. It's just like, and she pulls her clothes tighter against her. It's just kind of like, <laughs> you more than any shot. The entire us, you get the feeling of just how disgusting that apartment must be. I mean, everything about the apartment was, and he, I forget, he brushes his teeth 
in a in like a coffee cup and rinses out the toothbrush in the coffee cup that he was just drinking and then takes a drink out of it. I'm just like, what is happening? What am I watching? Can you imagine millennials today watching this? Millennials, there's no way. Their no, brains no, would no. explode. We're, I think we're long past that kind of guy being a hero in a movie like that. I think, which, you know, I mean, we've talked about the villain. Let's mention the film's hero. You know, we're talking about him. And I got to ask, is he a hero? You know, we're, we're introduced to uh, Detective Harley Stone. And this guy, he wears his sunglasses at night. He lights his cigars with a mini blowtorch. He shows his ID to guard dogs. He has a crazy gun. I, you know, thinking of the time period, I could easily see him hanging out with Stallone's Cobra. You know, I could see this son of a bitch cutting his pizza with a pair of scissors. I, I believe that, you know, but. Well, that's a good question. That's a good. That's an excellent question. When was when? Let's look that up. Let's look that. When was Cobra? <laughs> because it certainly feels like Cobra. Wait, wait, am I in the wrong thing? Cobra. I think it had to have predated oh, it. 1986. Yeah. Yeah. This came out after Cobra. So, yeah, it's that kind of character. It's definitely that kind of character. By the way. Stallone takes the pizza out of the fridge, cuts it with a pe- with a pair of scissors, eats a bite, and puts it back in the fridge. Freaking Rutger left the pizza in the sink under the dirty dishes. <laughs> so, completely does, different hygiene. Does that make him more or less of a badass? I don't know. I mean, I I have no idea. I mean, you I mean, know, he is meant to be in badass mode. I, I think we're meant to be impressed by him. You know, he, he has that great sort of hero's moment. The very second we see him when he throws on the glasses and strides down, you know, that backlit hallway with the machine gun. You know, we know he's our no, lead. But, he is. But no sooner but, do we meet him than we discover that the cops are trying to hunt him down. You know, we find out it's eventually yeah. because, you know, he's still searching for a serial killer while on suspension. And honestly, how... Does that guy not get fired time and time again? I think he does. But I think (laughs) I think what we love about the movie, it's it's this is like it or not, it's a buddy movie, and it's it's the geek who's I don't even know what he is, uh, Dick Durkin, who joins forces with this guy who's just completely disgusting, and and we like that they become the best friends. It was weird. I mean, you know, you're 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 stealing the Jaws line, which is, you know, we need a bigger boat. And he keeps saying over and over, we need bigger guns, which is true. And uh, they've both been marked by the devil. So now they can both sort of feel this creature. I mean, it's I just think this is a movie that if, if anyone ever came to me and said, would you be willing to remake this? Oh, my God. <laughs> I would remake this thing in a second. I, I just think the buddy element of it and the and everything that we've talked about, the, the from from the 40 days and 40 nights to the Zodiac element of it to um, just this creature that, you know, comes out every so often. It's very mythology. Uh, uh, there's there's a mythology to it. But a lot of times you don't have that, which is kind of nice. Yeah, I would totally remake this movie. Would you keep him then the sort of um... – yeah, when we look at Harley Stone, he's kind of the sort of anti-hero type that seems so popular in the 80s and 90s, where it seemed like, you know, there, there was that moment where, like, super muscular action heroes were kind, kind of being replaced with a kind of darker comic book quirkiness. And then that eventually went away for more, you know, arguably grounded heroes. And then we swung all the way back to 
full-on comic book superheroes being the most popular hero of the day, currently anyway, but do you miss that era of fun, quirky anti-hero? Because if I can say, I mean, as a fan, Drive Angry's John Milton seemed kind of like a cool throwback to that style of action movie lead. Hmm. I hadn't thought of that, but yeah, I think you're right. I mean, um, we certainly... I mean, what we thought about the most was High Plains Drifter. Oh, wow. Which was, uh, and that's why you see, um, it's sort of, it's it's wrong. That's why you see uh, Bill Fickner's character sort of walk in from this bridge. He just sort of appears out of nowhere. Um, but yeah, the idea was High Plains Drifter. So um, definitely an anti-hero. Because, you know, Clint Eastwood in High Plains Drifter rapes a girl in the beginning of the day. Of the, in the first five minutes of the movie. Yeah. Um, which, you know, you can't nor, in, in my opinion, should you do that today? Um, I don't remember thinking of it as an issue when I was a kid, but I think I was too naive to even understand what was happening. Do you uh, think that's even a matter of you being a kid at the time, too? Because I wonder what audiences made of that at the time. Like, was that a big deal then? I don't think it was. Which is I creepy. think at the time, you know, <laughs> you know, it, it, you know, we were, a, a, you know, and we still are to some degree, a very religious nation. You know, the man's ahead of the household. If he wants to walk in and rape a woman, he can. You know, if the president wants to, um, oh wait, was I going political? Please do. Let's go back to. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, you know, it, we live in a world where it depends on what side of the political spectrum you are. Um, I've worked with the Weinstein's a lot. And they can kiss my ass, as far as I'm concerned. Um, you know, you you cross the line, then you got to go. And I think, you know, that's one side of the, of the political argument. And on the other side of the political argument, you cross the line and you pretend it didn't happen. And I think that's a problem. Um, I don't know what that has to do with Rutger Hauer and, uh, and Dick Durkin. <laughs> but, um, but I do like the idea that... Uh, Durkin is completely won over, and it's and you see Rutger Hauer's character just loving it, loving the idea that he's completely corrupted this kid, and I like that. That's fun. What is it? You know, it kind of falls into that era too, where you have not only the renegade, rule breaking cop, but you have the nerdy, by the book partner to trail our hero and be exasperated by him, and you know, eventually he comes around and fights alongside him. You know. The, you know, Dick Durkin is kind of our stand-in for who, like Danny Glover or Brian Benben, I think. And uh, Brian Benben, I forgot all about him. <laughs> I Come in God. Peace, I think, is one of the great action movies of that era. That's another yeah. movie that doesn't get nearly as much love as it should. Um, I wonder whatever happened to him. I always wonder that kind of stuff. What, like, what happened? Like, I was look before we get we did this. I looked up Dick Durkin, uh, Alistair, who is. Apparently, he's a hugely success, successful voice actor now. Really, I didn't know that. Yeah, he he does. He's been doing voice acting forever. I mean, he did Batman. He's done tons of stuff, um, video games, and on and on, um, which is great. I um, I think Brian Benben Ben eh, I can't speak. Brian Benben's last uh, thing that I saw him in anyway was uh, uh, John Landis's episode for Masters of Horror, the uh, Dear Woman episode, and he was. Still fantastic in it. He was amazing. Like his comic timing is brilliant. He yeah. made for a hell of a, uh, a a leading man. You know, weirdly enough, for that episode, he's a, again he's another guy. It's just kind of like where where is yeah. he? Why did he go away? Why can't he be back out there? You know, still still doing it, still acting. You yeah. know, and maybe he is. I just I haven't seen him. 
he was in that dirty HBO show for a long time. Dream on. Yeah. All right. Dream on. Yeah. He, uh, so yeah, I forgot all about him, but he was, uh, but again, there's a buddy movie. He was great in that. And that's a buddy movie too. I would say that's probably yours. That year was I come in peace. Oh, that would have to be around maybe 90 or 91. Let's look. 90. 1990. Is that right? No, that's TV episode. That can't be right. <laughs> Do you have the name right? Did I get their name wrong? I come in peace. I think it's also called Dark Angel. No. That's after my time. Is it really? I think so. Oh, yeah, 1990. Dark Angel. When did they do that? Uh, it was uh, that was the alternate title for it. I only ever knew it as I Come in Peace, but when uh, Scream Factory released it on Blu-ray a couple of years ago, they had to do so under the uh, the original title, oh, which I, I think is kind of that. just eh, I Come in Peace is way more fun. It's way more B movie. Yeah, I think, no, that's I nineteen. That's that. nineteen ninety. So that still is a, is before Split Second, and you can tell from their apartments they're very clean. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know what's going on with that. It's funny because uh, Tony, I uh, forget the the director, Tony, I forget his name. Uh, Malin? Uh, yes. He, uh, I never, I, like, I didn't, I didn't, don't know any of his movies other than The Burning. Yeah, I was looking either, over the uh, list earlier. Journal of uh, a Serial Killer or something like that he did once. I, I haven't seen any Had of you seen that? Films. No, no, no. Uh, yeah. His filmography is just kind of a, a dark spot for me. I, But, you know, I dig the two, uh, two genre flicks he did anyway, definitely. Because The Burning is such a damn good movie. Uh, so very well made. I, I would argue that The Burning is a better made film than Split Second, even even though I do like Split Second. But The Burning, to me, is one of those just really, really cool slasher movies. When I first saw it, uh, I'm ashamed to say I had never caught it before the Scream Factory Blu-ray. I had to review it for uh, Dread Central back in the day. And uh, when I did, it kind of left me cold the first time I saw it. And, uh, you know, it took a while for me to come around and appreciate it, but I really do. The rap so I'm doing it. alone. Yeah, I haven't uh, I haven't seen it in a while. I'm doing a search for Venom and Split Second. <laughs> I'm curious what Google has to say. Oh, Google has a lot to say as it turns out. So, yeah, a lot of people. Oh, wow, look at that. He's definitely wearing goggles. Yeah, really? Just totally goggles. Why? Why is a demon wearing goggles? See, this is why, you know, to go back to the very, very beginning of our conversation as to why a certain movie didn't get a sequel, I will now ask, why did Split Sequel, or <laughs> why did Split Second not get a split sequel? Uh, why were there not follow-ups to that movie? Was it an issue, do you think, of its success? or uh, Because that is a movie that needed a follow-up. We needed more time. Hey, hell, it's even set up at the very end of the movie. Spoiler alert for anyone out there who's listening to this without having seen Split Second before, but, uh, and shame on you, definitely watch the movie before you hear these conversations, but the movie ends with those bubbles rising up, you know? Yeah, so you uh, know it's gonna, you know he's still alive. Well, you know, it's funny. I looked on the Wikipedia page. That's the way I took it, but then somebody, you know, who did the Wikipedia write-up was like, well, clearly this means that there are more creatures, Okay. I was like, okay, do we have a Chud thing going on here, or it's possible? But let's look at it this way: Blade Runner, as we all know, was a flop. We all know that, right? Yes. 
this. No, like it opened at five million, which is I think still more than Drive Angry and Jason X. But still, it uh, it only made thirty three million in the U.S. So it was considered a flop. Uh, Rutgers movie split second only made five point four million. Oh. So I think that's probably why we didn't get the sequel. Well, no, no, no. Wait, what about Split Second twenty forty nine? What? Can't Denis Villeneuve do uh, do a sequel to Split Second? Can we hope? Maybe Ryan Gosling. No, it's possible. You can be Harley uh, Stone Jr. It's certainly possible. Um, you know, um, it's Big Trouble in Little China is getting a sequel. Blade Runner got a sequel. They yeah, I, wait, what? Did, what? Did you say Big Trouble in Little China is getting a sequel? Yeah. No. Well, I think it's. I think it's a, a reboot. No. How do you not know this? Well, I remember a couple of years ago, somebody mentioning that The Rock wanted to do a remake of it. And I I remember having a hearty laugh at that. And uh, and here's the thing. I like The Rock. I think The Rock playing a character like that is... No! Yes! Okay, you know what? I'm cool with this. If it's a reboot in the sense that it acknowledges that the first movie happened. I don't want to see The Rock in that shirt playing Jack Burton. What they're saying now is that The Rock is in this movie. It's a reboot. And the reason that it's a reboot, and by the way, this just broke. This news just broke that it's a reboot, is that so they can bring back Jack Burton as an old curmudgeon like okay, he so wasn't when he first was. I'm completely fine with this idea now. Okay, good. I, I need this. Yes. I, and I'm completely cool then. I, I hope this begins the wave of John Carpenter reboots that actually acknowledge the existence of the movies that he did so that maybe, possibly... One day he can direct Escape from Earth. That'd be great. Even though totally. Guy Pierce did it like eight years ago. Yeah. That was totally it. He did indeed. Did you see that? Yeah. No, you know, I actually thought that movie was a lot of fun, but I swear. I thought it was, I was fine. Watching, I didn't have a problem with it. Yeah. yeah it, but, you know, you watch it and it's just like, this is this is what a third Escape movie would have been like. This is yeah. exactly what it is. And apparently, you know, some courts thought so too. Well, it seemed like, I mean, if you watch that movie, you're like, oh, they definitely love John Carpenter's Escape from New York. <laughs> oh, it's such a great... Okay, no, I did not know about Big Trouble, but I am, I am, that makes me very happy that uh, we might possibly get old Jack Burton now. Yeah, uh, Zach and his, uh, I assume Zach and his partner who did uh, Thor are uh, doing the movie. Nice. Zach Stintz. So, um friend of mine we hung out and uh got lubricated at the uh, terminator last terminator movie oh very cool so um you know i was just dropping some hollywood for you no 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 hey i you know i'm a terminator fan i was there opening night for the last one i uh, i'm looking forward to the new one which is you know what there seems to be uh is that the new sequel is it a new remake to uh sort of make a film that ignores decades worth of sequels and goes right back to the very beginning. Has, has this ever been a thing before? Because I, you know, you know Texas Chainsaw 3D did it. You know, now we have Halloween doing it. We have uh, the Terminator doing it. And I wonder how many other like, you know, classic franchises like that are going to sort of how many, hell, how many are there at this point that could possibly do that where they could wipe out, you know, a half a dozen sequels in between what they're doing in the original film. That's a good question. Um, I don't know. I, it's it's interesting. I didn't know what they were doing the Halloween. Uh, Patrick and I had worked on um, Halloween numerous times over the years. We um, we got paid to write Halloween 3D, 
which was that's still when the Weinstein's were um, uh, raping women and, and you know doing the things that they did. But uh, we didn't we didn't know that. Um, but uh, I remember hearing a story that he was talking about this girl, this actress who had uh, done dirty things to him. He was bragging about it. And, uh, and I remember thinking, this is how na- naive I am. I remember thinking, uh, like, I've seen you, and I've seen her, and, yeah, you're lying. Because <laughs> I was like, there's just no way that happened. And, uh, and then she came out to say, yeah, these things happened. And I was like, and I, I felt horrible because I didn't believe it because I thought it was, like, stupid. But, um, but yeah, this was back when, uh, when that was going on. So that was back in 19, 2000, no, not 19, 2011, maybe 2010. And this was going to be a follow-up to the Rob Zombie films. Yeah, this was going to be, uh, one of the Weinsteins. I won't tell you which of the two had called us and said, Hey, you got to help us. Rob is fucking a show. You got to do something. And so, uh, he wasn't, he was making his movie, which is what he signed on to do. And so we took a look at it, and uh, we did our version. We wrote our version, anyway, very quickly. And I liked it. I still think it was a fantastic uh, approach. We, you know, the first act was was playing out Rob's movie, and then we sort of went back into, uh, at the end of the first act, we killed Michael Myers, or at least as far as everyone knew, we killed Michael Myers. And then a year later at Halloween, he comes back, and he goes into a, you know, like a novelty store, you know, these novelty stores that open up, you know, 30 days before Halloween and they close the day after Halloween. Spirit Halloween. Exactly. So, you know, he goes into one of those stores as they're prepping and there's one James T. Kirk mask left. And, and the, kid, the kid behind the counter is like, what do we do with this thing? Because there's only one. He's like, put it on the shelf, put $3 on it. Somebody will buy it. And then he turns around and Michael Myers is standing there and he kills the guy and grabs the mask. And so the shape returns. And, you know, we still wanted Tyler to do it because at this point, Tyler, you know, I'd become friends with Tyler. And I was like, even though you're a freaking T-Rex, I would love for you to play it like, you know, like like the shape, like you're slow and you're oh, not wow. slow. But he's, you know, he's my the thing I loved about Michael Myers is he's a dick. I mean, <laughs> Michael Myers is under that sheet with the glasses on. What a freaking dick. I mean, that's dick move 101. I mean, it's wonderful. It was all about trick or treat, right? Like he was a prankster in the first movie, and none of the sequels really followed through with that. Now, that said, it looks like this new one may be going that route, which is kind of awesome. But we knew nothing about the new one. And then um, so we didn't end up making that movie for reasons that I would probably get sued if I mentioned. But um, Uh um, then we ended up working on Hellraiser for a while, and then years later – I think a couple of different times Malik came to us saying, do you want to you know, work on this again? And so we worked on it a few different times. And then I guess about two years ago, we came up with a whole concept uh, for a reboot. And it was, um, I say reboot, that's the wrong word. I get them all confused now. Uh, re- yeah. Yeah. Reboot. Cause remake is to remake the original reboot was to tell the story accepting that the original stories all took place. And so what we were going to do was open at the end of the previous movie and then go in kind of a different direction. Previous with the, the, the sort of Carpenterverse being, films or yeah, the, the original, the original Halloween movie and then kind of at like open at the end of that movie and then go in a different, like when, you know, when 
uh, Loomis looks over the, the, the balcony and he's gone. Pick up from there. Oh, wow. And go in a different direction. Which apparently is what the, the new film is doing, right? It's sort of, it's not even accounting for number two, I don't think. It's, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, well, yeah, I guess you're right because he's in a institution, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm intrigued. I think it looks fantastic. Um, but, um, you know, Halloween was one of the things, I mean, certainly, uh, Patrick and I met with, uh, with John and, uh, I met with John recently and I remember Patrick just going into how, he was just I, I've 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 been Patrick's friend for a long time and I've never seen him starstruck than when he was sitting next to John Carpenter, <laughs> which was kind of awesome. And uh, but yeah, I mean it's um, this is a guy who like people ask me what are your favorite movies? I don't have favorite movies. I have movies that led me down the path to be, to become who I am and to you know drive you know load up my pickup truck and drive all the way out to California to pursue movies. And, um, John Carpenter was one of those jaws and empire strikes back and Halloween. Those were three of the movies that made me who I am. And, um, I mean, I, you know, I still, you know, I, my first movie was a, was a Friday the 13th movie and I have no regrets. I put Jason in space and you can suck my big toe if you don't like it. But, uh, uh I, I will say that I, I love Jason X. Um, I, 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 that is one of my favorite Friday movies. I'm not even the biggest Friday the 13th fan, but I, I, to me, it's like number six and Jason X and Friday four after that. Those are my top three. I, um, well, we're close because Jason lives is certainly my favorite. Um, that's, that's, is that six? That's five. I thought, is it, I'm thinking of the Tom McLaughlin one. Uh, let's look it up. It's a very hammer horror one. They bring him back with the lightning bolt and the pole. Yeah, that's five. That's Jason Lives. That's the Bond opening. I'm pretty good. I'm pretty sure that's six. Because five you is the are, creepy. Oh crap! You're right. I hate you. <laughs> yeah, it's part six. That's the middle Fine. of Tommy Jarvis. That's the sleazy movie part. You're right. <laughs> All right. Fine. But I but hey, you. no no no. But I put Jason X up there with six. So uh, yeah, uh, J- it was certainly Jason. Part six. I hate this. Yes, is my favorite because it, because it's the first one. Is like you know what? Let's not take this seriously anymore. Let's just have fun with it. And uh, wow, they do this so well, so well. But what I love about the Jason series is that every single movie is different. I mean, every one. If you think about it, they're they're not. It's not like Halloween, where Halloween keeps kind of regurgitating. Would you agree? I mean, it's uh, yes. Uh, I, mean, I mean, look at two. It definitely follows a template, but you know, by the time you start introducing like the thorn cult and whatnot, and you know what, I'll go ahead and say this too. Uh, for all of its faults, and it has many. Damn it, I like Halloween Six. I do. It 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 it's one for the fences. I think when it came to the script and uh, how it tried to tie together, you know, the the, the previous movies. I uh, and not only that. Paul Rudd is pretty great in the movie. He he has one of my favorite movies that any horror character has ever had in a horror film. That moment. Are you familiar with Halloween 6? Yeah. Okay, that moment in the theatrical cut. I think it's the theatrical cut. Where the, he, it is. Yes, he I know is standing in the hallway. And he is trying to free uh, uh, Kara Strode from, uh, you know, the, the 
uh, her little cell. And he has this fire extinguisher, and he's beating the hell out of the door handle trying to open it. And he just senses something. And he stops, <laughs> and he turns, and Michael Myers is standing at the end of the hallway, you know, a stone's throw away, just kind of staring at him like, is he really trying to fucking do this? And it cuts to Paul Rudd, and this is one of my favorite moments ever. Rudd gives way, out this Paul Rudd. Oh, sorry, good. Moment of silence from Paul Rudd. Oh, God, he didn't die, too, did he? No, but he, he, he's gone on to great things. Oh, and okay. And look where he was. He was in a Halloween movie. Absolutely. And I, God, I think that was his first movie, right? Did he do it before Clueless or after Clueless? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. We'd have to look. But, no, but still, his, it was back in the beginning, yeah. His giggle that he gives in that moment, that holy shit, I can't believe this is happening to me moment. I've never seen that in a horror film before or since, and it's, I just, I love it. I love it so much. That makes the entire movie for me. Uh, but I dig that movie. That was the first Halloween movie I ever saw in a theater either. Holy shit, we have veered so far away from Split Second, it's mind-boggling, and I apologize. Wait, Split what? <laughs> you know, that it's funny. You were talking about John Carpenter, though, and it reminds me of something I was going to ask you. With every one of Carpenter's movies, he has right above the title. It's either John Carpenter's whatever, you know, John Carpenter's Halloween, John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness, uh, John Carpenter's whatever the hell, right? And those movies are also a film by John Carpenter, as so many other movies uh, yeah. You know, the director takes that credit, a film by. And I was looking, I was doing a little research on Split Second. And it's strange. On the Wikipedia page, the 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 uh, director by credit is given to Tony Malum, uh, who is credited on the film as such, and is the yeah. sole director so far as the film is concerned. And it's also credited to a guy named Ian Sharp. And his name shows up at the very beginning of the end credits. Uh, his uh, his credit reads Subway Train and Additional Action Sequences by Ian Sharp. And apparently this guy, you know, he directed some television. I think he directed some films. He directed lots of uh, big action scenes for various movies. You know, he uh, mm -hmm. he directed the action scenes for the Bond film Goldeneye, apparently, which is otherwise a Martin Campbell film. And right. But the thing is, when you think of Goldeneye, you think of the fucking action scenes. Uh, yeah. When, when you think of Split Second, I dig Split Second, but that subway train fight is a highlight. The additional action sequences are highlights in that movie. They're pretty major fucking scenes. And yet, you know... I, the guy who directed those standout sequences kind of takes a backseat to the guy who is directing, you know, uh, the the scenes with the actors speaking dialogue and emoting and whatnot. Now, I'm, I'm just wondering whose film is it anyway between those guys? The guy who films the actors speaking and emoting in an action film or the guy who films the big action sequences in an action film? You know, and, hmm. I, I, you know, I guess in a long way. I, I, That's I a good just, question. You know, because... Uh, you know, you, you have written Jason X and Drive Angry and My Bloody Valentine. And, you know, I, surely as a screenwriter, you must have an opinion, too, about, say, possessory credits that some directors take. You know, what what is your overall feeling on the sort of singular ownership that can happen on a certain movie? Well, I mean, I've been lucky because the directors that I've worked with have always been very... Um, They've always come back to me. With um, with Jason X, uh, Jason X took a a left turn right before production. There was another writer 
came in. I don't think I don't think very many people know this at all. Another guy came in. He'd never written anything else, but one of the producers liked him, and he came in and he did a complete rewrite. And I remember getting a uh, call from the director, who was Jim Isaac, saying, "We've made a terrible mistake, <laughs> and we need you to fix it." Because the terrible mistake that we made is the white pages. Now, white pages, once you go into production, that's the script. There's no, it's not like you can throw it out and go to something else. Those, that was the script. And the script had made, it, had made a, 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 diff, a different turn. And so I went back in and basically rewrote everything I originally had back into it. And so I turned it into blue pages. And, um, but, you know, there are a lot of directors that wouldn't do that. Uh, something similar happened on My Bloody Valentine where another writer came in, did a rewrite, and the studio was like, they didn't want to admit that this was a mistake, so Patrick ended up doing some rewrites. And because Patrick wasn't officially paid to do those rewrites, he he couldn't get credit on it. And so that's how Patrick, Lucia, and I became partners, because I said to him, you know what, this will never happen again. From now on, you're my partner. We write together. And you're protected because him writing as a director, he doesn't have the same WGA protections as being a WGA writer. And, um, and so that's how we ended up writing drive anger together. Um, and you know, we've been writing ever since. So, uh, we just, uh, we just turned in a script uh, a couple of weeks ago. And so, um, I've been lucky because even with Patrick, Patrick was like, I need you on set. I need you to be there to, you know, to do whatever writing needs to be done. To So for me, um, I never ran across that. I think in this situation, I may be wrong. I have no idea. But Split Second may have gone into reshoots. Like they may have seen the original movie, didn't like it, and they did a, a completely different ending. And so they brought in a different director did that. I don't know that, though. I have no idea. So you're saying all of the action sequences were directed by somebody different? Oh, I don't know that they all were. I just know that uh, that is, uh, you know, then, that in credit reads the subway train sequence and other action sequences were directed by Ian Sharp, who, again, you know, directed the action scenes in GoldenEye. And it reminds me of, uh, you know, I remember when Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon came out back in the day. Now, I think that's a great film. It's a great story. You can take out all of the action from that movie and you still have mm-hmm. a damn fine tale. And yet, yeah. when everybody was jazzed about seeing the movie, it's because they saw that trailer with all the amazing, you know, uh, uh, gravity-defying fight scenes in it. And, you know, Ang Lee didn't film those. You know, Ang Lee focused on the drama, and I think it was uh, Wu Ping who did the action, and you know, which is a significant part of the finished film. So, you know, it, it, it's strange to me that I don't know that the, those credits aren't given more weight, or those contributions yeah. aren't given more weight than a throwaway credit at the very end, when in fact they might be directing a significant chunk of the film that we're going to the multiplex to see in the first place. And uh, Well, it's interesting you say that because I, I don't know what the answer is. I think there may be two. In, in a movie like uh, Crouching Tiger, that may have been from the beginning, let's bring this guy in who's really good with drama and let's bring this guy in who's really good with action. Let's combine them. I don't know that. But with a, a movie like Split Second, there's no way they went <laughs> into that. It's it's a It's a very low budget. There's no way they went into that with two directors in mind. I think what probably happened, and I could be wrong, they went into it with one director in mind, 
they didn't like the cut, and so they brought in a different director to add to basically poof it up with some action. Uh, so that feels like reshoots. I could be wrong. And by the way, if you look at that last sequence, that sequence in the subway feels very different from everything else. Absolutely. It does not feel like the same movie. It feels a little different. And uh, I'm not saying it feels great. It feels like it's 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 forced. Um, I could be wrong. I've never been wrong before, but I could be wrong. <laughs> um, but... Uh, yeah, that's uh, that is interesting. I know that uh, Patrick has done some uh, very se- super secret going in fixing movies, and I know it, it can be frustrating because you're going in and you're dealing with something that's not. And I think he got that because you know he was the Weinstein's editor forever, so he would constantly be brought in to fix movies. And I remember going in and watching movies that were not very good. And then he, he comes in and re-edits them and makes them better. But, you know, when you start with a movie that's bad, it's always kind of going to be bad. You can make it a little better, but you can only go so far. And uh, I've seen him come in and do reshoots on movies, like super secret. You can't tell nobody, like sign paperwork so you can't say anything about it. And so it happens all the time. And, um, and it's funny because I've seen him fix a movie that, launched a guy's career like he went in the movie was a mess and he fixed it he did reshoots and he fixed the movie and then the guy went on to great heights i'm not gonna ask but i really really want to know when when we close this down (laughs) (laughs) we'll just torture the listeners out there with that yes you guys get to be tortured and you have to swear to secrecy I on on yes absolutely <laughs> on my word, I uh, but yeah you know I I you know and we're we're close to closing here but I guess you know that you mentioned in Carpenter earlier and you know with me having that question in the back of my mind it just sort of brought me to wanting to ask your opinion as a writer like about that you know is it called the possessory credit but the uh, the a film by sort of credit that some directors will take and the idea you know I remember uh, do you remember the magazine creative screenwriting yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, I remember somebody talking about, you know, that, you know, a director directs a movie and he gets a director's credit for it. But he also gets the a film by credit as opposed to, you know, when you look at the end credits, the film is really by everybody, you know, yeah. in in those end credits. And uh, but I, I, I got to say, that's also something that seems to have gone away a little bit. I remember, you know, growing up. Uh, a kid in the 90s, you know, watching programs before uh, the internet was, uh, you know, what it is now. I would have to wait and watch programs that would show trailers for upcoming movies if I didn't catch them in the theater. And it seemed like, you know, back in the day, that would always be the final moment in any trailer. You know, when uh, Mr. Trailer Voice would boom out, a film by, you know, and then somebody. And it seems like that's gone away a bit over the years. And I think maybe probably, I, this is just one guy's opinion, possibly for the better. I don't know, but do you have an opinion on this? Or I, I never liked it because, well, I never, it's, and that's not true. There was a time period when I didn't know the difference. But once I became a part of the process, you're right. It's um, like I know for a fact when we did Drive Angry, there was a PA who did amazing things. And the movie would not be as good as it was if it weren't for this PA who absolutely bent over backwards and broke a leg for the movie. Um, so the crew is a huge part of that. And 
it's interesting because I remember being on, um, like I wasn't on set a lot during My Bloody Valentine, but I was on Drive Angry. And at the end of the shoot, and here's here's what here's what the day looks like on, on a movie production. Like people think that, uh, you know, uh, movie people get paid a lot of money, and sure they do. But uh, I, an actual movie production is it's kind of a nightmare because you get up. Like for me, I would get up at four o'clock in the morning and go work out because I knew I was going to be naked and I didn't want to look stupid. <laughs> and so then, at five thirty, Patrick would pick me up. And so at five thirty, we would go. We'd get food. He would then sit down and he would map out the shoots for the, uh, his shots for the day. We'd go in. We do we do twelve hours of shoot. You have a break in between there somewhere, and then at the end of the day. We're exhausted. We then have to go do dailies, which is watch the, the, the movie from the day before that, or two days before. But before that, he would, at the end of the shoot, he would walk around to every department, to the effects department, to the makeup department. And knowing everyone's name would thank them personally. Thank you, David. Okay. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Andrea. And he would thank everyone for their work for the day. And then we would go, we would get in the car and we'd drive back to wherever the production office was. And then we'd watch two hours of dailies. And so by, you know, one o'clock in the morning, we're getting home. I'm climbing to bed and then I got to get up at four and work out because I'm fat and I don't want to look stupid on screen. So that was our day. But uh, that's, that's production. I think a lot of people forget that. And it's, by the way, there's nothing better. And if you ever get the opportunity to do it, do it. But you don't get a lot of sleep. And uh, oh, I'm feeling awful nostalgic all of a sudden. <laughs> did you do that on purpose? I did not. I did not. But, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because maybe we'll take a second to say, you know, in addition to Tony Malum, who who directed a fine film in Split Second, maybe we'll take two seconds just to say thank you, Ian Sharp, as well. I think that's a good idea. Thank you. Thank you, Ian, Ian Sharp. Sharp. Oh, my God. You put pauses in there. I did. I'm sorry. I It's the Kirk <laughs> and me. I apologize. <laughs> All right. So well, what are you, you going to do now that your your Thursday night is uh, free? Me? Um, back to writing. So. No, don't do that. <laughs> nothing, nothing good can come from that. Uh, hasn't so far, but hey, uh, uh, hope springs eternal. Yeah. Does indeed. <laughs> All right. So, so well, hey, I think that's just about our time. Mr. Farmer, thank you so much for your time and for choosing such a fun and, you know, kind of sadly underseen movie to chat about. I think more people need indeed. to get out there and watch Split Second. But before we wrap up, do you have any final parting thoughts on Split Second? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, it made me laugh. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. So, all right. Can I ask, what can fans keep an eye out for from you in the future? And where can they find you at online? Um, I'm extremely politically annoying on um, Twitter. But other than that, I mean, look, I love this genre. I've always loved the genre. I always will love the genre. It's, um, it's still the thing that if you want to come out and make movies, it's still the place to break in. Um everybody's involved now every tv show has a, a horror movie or a horror tv show or something that didn't used to be the case do you remember when it used to be just a few places oh yeah the world the world has changed uh how uh, many, you would never have more than hor two horror shows on at once it seemed at least growing up like uh 
I remember the X-Files becoming a phenomenon being sort of a mind-blowing thing yeah. as a kid of like 12 years old. So. Yeah. I remember Kolchek, you know, which was, you know, every week it was a different monster, which was like, but it was the only one. There was nothing else. Now, every, every network has their own genre show. It's kind of nuts. And it's beautiful because I've always felt like genre movies, genre shows are you get everything. You get drama, you get comedy, you get scares. It's all there. And so I think people are starting to figure that out. That's kind of a good thing. But maybe I'm wrong. So everyone out there, keep watching horror. All right. I can't think of a better way to end than that, sir. Thank you again. All right. So you mentioned you are very politically annoying, although I would disagree with that because I pretty much agree with all of your tweets and retweets, and I generally retweet them myself. But what is your Twitter handle? Where can people find you at? It is Todd with two Ds. I don't know why mom and dad did two Ds, but two Ds underscore farmer, F-A-R-M-E-R. That's uh, corn, crops, marijuana at uh, Twitter. So um, that's where you find me. Excellent. All right, sir. Thank you again. And thanks to all you listeners out there. As always, please make certain to like, subscribe, share. Tell your friends about us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter. That's at Scream Addicts, and I am at Jenks1981. Until next time, folks, thanks so much, and have a great weekend. magic has me in a spell. That old black magic that you fucking nuts. Hey gang, just wanted to take two seconds here to give a shout out to Paul Farrell for being a patron saint of sound waves for his contribution this month. You rule, Paul. Thank you so much.